This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. That Jogger County high school play we had talked about earlier it's back on. The residents of that school district showed up in mass and the school board retreated from their position of canceling the school play because it was too vulgar. It's Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn. I'm here with Lisa Garvin, Laura Johnston, and Layla Tassi, who sent me an astounding video yesterday morning of a herd of deer running through her backyard. <laughs> Layla, I don't know how you deal with the tick problem in your backyard. Well, and I saw them again this morning at the exact same time, the seven, eight deer just kind of moseying through it. I must be on their, their morning route. <laughs> They're dropping like their was, kids off at school. That's right. <laughs> I felt like I was watching Yellowstone, only they were deer instead of cattle. It was a lot of deer a running ton. through there. Right. Wow. All right, let's get going. We're going to get to start the podcast with our favorite subject, Jim Jordan. Did Ohio's Jim Jordan hold a hearing yesterday to get information from former Twitter execs on censorship, or did he really just do it to opine on his personal beliefs about the situation? Laura, it's kind of hard to tell. I mean, Chris, are you doubting Jim Jordan's pure heart for the goodness of the American people? Do you think he likes to grandstand? Um, this was all about Hunter Biden's laptop. And and Jim Jordan repeatedly questioned former Twitter employees about the company's decision to block a New York Post article about Biden's laptop before the 2020 election. And they had the former trust and safety official, whose name is Yoel Roth. He told Jordan that the bosses at the company decided the story violated its policies, but then they reversed course two days later. He said it was not done at the request of the FBI or the Biden campaign, but Jordan was incredibly skeptical and basically said that they were suppressing conservative viewpoints and, and breaking the First Amendment. Yeah, it seemed like it was less to elicit answers than it was to grandstand. Although one of the Twitter executives did point out that because of the Republican publicity that came out after Elon Musk rela released a lot of this information, one executive had to sell his house and move uh, because oh, wow. he said what Twitter did was unleash a homophobic uh, just spate of hatred and that he knew other employees, former employees who had done the same thing. The amazing thing was Marjorie Taylor Greene told mm -hmm. him, I'm glad you lost your job and, and laid into him. I just wish the guy would have said, you know, Congresswoman, you're a nut job and everybody in America knows it. <laughs> Well, the thing is, they're saying they suppress conservative viewpoints. But let's remember that President Trump was on there tweeting, you know, urging on this January 6th attack. I don't really think that you can take this one example, and I'm sure there are examples across the board, and say that Twitter was trying to be, you know, a liberal bastion and trying to get Democrats elected. And, and some of the Democrats on the committee said that, and they, they accuse Republicans of hypocrisy, because when Trump was president, they asked Twitter to remove a post from Trissy, Chrissy Teigen that was uh, derogatory against Trump. So, I mean, we're talking about one story here. It, 
this does not seem bigger than that. And it's the New York yeah, Post. It, I mean, come on, it's a New York Post article. <laughs> I mean, New York Magazine did a much better and more interesting and and accurate article about the Hunter Biden laptop, which is rife with you know, it's there's a, a custody chain that's been broken there. Yeah, I I. Th- th- I think in, you're seeing polling of independents in America that don't like this. They don't like this Republican screeching. And the the far-right conservatives like Jordan and Green could just be building up a backlash because of what they're doing. This is not about finding the truth. This is about grandstanding and playing to the base. But the majority doesn't really want to see this, which we'll be talking about in our next story. You're listening to Today in Ohio. There's no surprises here, but the devil is in the details. What did our congressional delegation have to say about Joe Biden's State of the Union speech? Lisa, this was an interesting speech. Well, and it was. It was a fiery speech, and uh, Biden handled his Republican hecklers quite well. And since we're talking about Jim Jordan, let's start with him. And he had an interview with Fox News after the State of the Union, and he said that we're the party of normal common sense. They've got all kinds of crazy positions. And he prayed. Arkansas Governor Sarah Sanders rebuttal where she said that we're normal and they're crazy. And he said that it was very bizarre that Biden didn't talk much about border security. Our newest Senator, J.D. Vance, he says Biden has produced widespread misery across the nation. Ohioans are worse off now because of violent crime, fentanyl epidemic, and energy costs. Another newly minted uh, congressperson, Max Miller, the uh, Republican from Rocky River, in a video that he posted, He said he's not surprised that Biden chose to gaslight and sugarcoat instead of telling hard truths. And he said Republicans would be willing to work with Biden if only he told the truth. And let's look at our uh, closer to home. uh, Well, Rocky River's close to home, but South Russell, uh, Representative Dave Joyce says, and he we'd like to think he's more moderate, but he said that Americans are feeling the pinch of the Biden and Democrats out of control spending and inflation. Uh, Our other senator, Sherrod Brown, our Democrat from Cleveland, said he's glad to see that Biden listed the accomplishments that he's made in the last two years. And our longest serving congresswoman, not only Ohio, but in the nation, Marcy Kaptur from Toledo, she says, I've been waiting 41 years for that speech about jobs in the economy, uh, uh, free Ukraine, stopping drugs at the border and retirement security for seniors. Yeah, the Republicans served up a volleyball for Biden to spike with the various proposals that have come out to trash Social Security and Medicare. There were, there are a lot of Republicans trying to pretend it didn't happen, but they have. The, the proposals are out there and Biden's got them. It also led to heckling that was was quite unusual, really, for a State of the Union. You know, Marjorie Taylor Greene yelled out, you're a liar. Uh, and again, there's polling that shows most Americans don't like that so much so that that McCarthy tried to get people not to do it, but they did it. And that is the identity of the Republican Party and it, contempt for the institutions and uncivil behavior. And it also shows how weak McCarthy is as a, is as a speaker. You know, he caved to the, the, the hard right Freedom Caucus and now they, they own him. Well, and they played in the Biden's hands. I mean, he owned them in the end. Yeah. They did not come across well, and he just kind of spiked it. I mean, they served it up. He he took advantage, and he comes out of that looking way better than they do, despite their their statements to the contrary. 
It's Today in Ohio. Ohio Governor Mike DeWine's name popped up in the Larry Householder corruption trial, and it is not a good look for the governor. Layla, what happened? Prosecutors say that HB6 backers were, were really doing everything they could to protect it from being repealed by a statewide vote. They were hiring folks to follow and basically harass people who were collecting signatures to put it on the ballot. They were lobbying Attorney General Dave Yost to declare that the cost to First Energy co- customers for the bailout was actually a tax and would have been immune to that statewide vote. And, and then there was this other strategy that came up. This would be to to come up with emergency legislation that would somehow block the ballot attempt. It's it's really unclear exactly what that bill would have done. That didn't come out at trial, but it was clear that such a thing was in the works. Well, according to one text message that was introduced at trial back on October 21st, 2019, then CEO of First Energy Chuck Jones sent someone a text message suggesting that he had been lobbying Governor DeWine for his support of that kind of legislation, and that Jones was pretty confident that he had DeWine's support. He texted, DeWine is on board, talked to him Wednesday. DeWine says he doesn't remember any kind of conversation like this with Chuck <laughs> <course> Jones. <laughs> and he reminded the media that he and his office, they, they you know, they're squeaky clean in this and there's no implication that they uh, that they're involved in HB six, so or the scandal. Um, well, squeaky clean. I don't know that they could say that. All they could <laughs> say is we weren't bought. We were completely in the pocket, but we didn't take money to be there. We just were their best friends. Dewine and Houston have a long relationship with First Energy. There's no evidence that they were bribed to do it, but they were part of the problem. Dewine signed HB six. Right. Right. Despite his predecessors refusing to go this direction, the legislature wouldn't do it. John Kasich wasn't interested in it, but Mike DeWine couldn't sign it fast enough. And now we hear he's having conversations with Chuck Jones, who looks terrible in this. You know, they must all all these guys must be getting up every day, just, you know, rubbing their temples, thinking, God, what's going to come out of this trial? (laughs) Right. Right. I wonder if we'll hear more about this text message or if this was just kind of a one off. I mean, I'm curious to know if if Jones misinterpreted a conversation or or you know what what really did happen there. Feels yes. too tantalizing. <laughs> I I can't wait to hear more. This has been a very revealing trial thus far. You're listening to Today in Ohio. We talked at the top of the podcast about a high school play that was canceled and reinstated. But the Cleveland Playhouse abruptly canceled the play in January without a full explanation. Social media erupted this week with some people involved explaining the reason. Laura, what is it? It has to do with the director pulling out because of the way that she thought one of the cast members was treated after reporting a sexual assault. So we're talking about the production of I'm Back Now. That was an original play commissioned related to uh, the factual story of the last, um, I think, slave captured by the Fugitive Slave Law. And so it was supposed to be done. This was the second time the Cleveland Playhouse had had to cancel a production in a row. And the se- in a series of social media posts, the director's story airs and the playwright, Charlie Yvonne Simpson, came to, they say, that the leadership of Cleveland Playhouse mishandled this sexual assault. And what they're responding to actually was just days after the theater said the play 
would no longer be produced and, and attributed to a series of events that impacted the community of artists involved with the production, which is very vague and could mean a lot of things. And um, she's the director is blaming this on a white supremacy culture. So she said, I said no to sending an actress back into rehearsal after a sexual assault. I said yes to prioritizing the health, well-being and safety of the I'm back now company. I understand why when they canceled the play, they were vague. It involves mm-hmm. a sexual assault. They were probably trying to be careful. I don't understand when all this blew up yesterday and we were reaching out to them for a comment, why they're not talking. I mean, this looks terrible. This just looks bad. The there are very there was a two time Pulitzer winning playwright that publicized this on mm-hmm. social media saying this is evidence about how people of color are treated in white-run institutions, it begs for a response, and they aren't responding. Yes, it does. And we don't really know details of this because we're basing it on what the director and the playwright have said on social media. There, We couldn't find a police report about this. That doesn't really surprise me. Obviously, sexual assault is a difficult thing to deal with, and I don't know where it was reported. But well, No, no, it, the the... the Stuff that came out said that the sexual assault occurred in an elevator in Reserve Square, but the production company kept the the person involved living in Reserve Square. Right. They didn't make arrangements to move them. Right. Exactly. But we just didn't have a another police report from the city, from the Cleveland Police Department. Anyway, regardless, the director saying she was never notified of the situation. She didn't know about potential dangers. After, at the complex, there had been a break-in before that, and basically was saying these people were mistreated, that this, the culture of the theater is the show must go on without thinking about the mental health and the repercussions for the people involved in the situation. Well, I if they would have spoken yesterday, this likely would have been a one-day story. Now it will carry on. I can't imagine they're going to remain quiet now. They're kind of under a spotlight We'll see what they have to say today. It's Today in Ohio. Let's talk some trains. First, did Ohio Governor Mike DeWine take a first step toward Amtrak expansion? Lisa, this is moving at a snail's pace, (laughs) which is odd because it's, you know, high-speed transportation. We want to get here. What did he do? Yeah, and this was actually an answer to a question I asked him during our editorial board meeting earlier this week. I'm like, are you going to take the Amtrak money? Because they've been hemming and hawing about it for months. And DeWine did tell the board that he will apply for a chunk of that $66 billion in infrastructure money for passenger rail expansion. This money would pay for feasibility studies about adding service along existing lines in Cleveland and Cincinnati and adding new route connections, including Dayton and Columbus, the so-called 3C and D line, and then cities in between. There is a March 27th deadline for applying for this grant money. Uh, The Ohio Rail Development Commission spokeswoman, Wendy Jordan, says they're still determining how many new or expanded routes are going to do. The Federal Railroad Administration will give $500,000 per corridor, and that money would hire consultants who gather information to eventually create a service development plan with specific recommendations. And let's not forget that the Northeast Ohio uh, Area-Wide Coordinating Agency, NOACA, is doing the same thing. They're applying for that money as well. They want to make Cleveland a mini hub for Amtrak with service to Chicago, D.C., and New York City. And Senator Sherrod Brown 
praised Governor DeWine. He says that, you know, expanding passenger rail will transform Ohio's economy and increase mobility for Ohioans. I still don't understand the governor's slow action on this. I, th- this seems like such a no-brainer. There's a ton of money. They're going to spend it. They've identified Ohio as a place where it could work. Why wouldn't you just automatically say, yeah, let's go? It, it, does what are his reasons? Well, I think his earlier reasons were is that, the, see, the feds are now shouldering more of the cost burden, whereas before more of the burden fell on the state. And that was his reasoning before. But he also is wondering if there's even a, a demand for that service. Well, we, we have talked about that, the, the chicken and egg. If you build this whole thing and there's no demand what happens to it, it becomes the RTA lakefront line where you put cardboard cutouts of people on the trains to make them look like they have population in them. Okay, trains part two. While many questions remain to be answered involving the big derailment in East Palestine, some people are not waiting before seeking damages. Lisa, who are they? Yeah, talk about jumping the gun. A lawsuit was filed in uh, Youngstown Federal Court yesterday by two East Palestine residents and a one business owner against Norfolk Southern uh, Railroad. Uh, they're seeking damages from the derailment, derailment of those 100 cars and the toxic spill and the fire, and they're also seeking class action status status. They allege that injuries and damages suffered from toxic fumes exposure and from the evacuation process. They say that the Norfolk failed to maintain or inspect their tracks and provide sufficient staffing to run their trains. The attorneys for the plaintiffs, Andrew Thompson, Neil Shapiro, and Nicholas Amato could not be reached by Cleveland.com or the Plain Dealer for Comment just yet. They're also seeking an order to prevent the railroad from removing property from the site and to abate the risk from toxic substances and to keep them from destroying records for 72 hours prior to the accident and also from trying to get class members to sign away their rights to sue. So it seems like the cart before the horse here. Well, I, I, I suspect that they want to be the ones that have the class action, that there'll be class action suits by getting in first. They figure they'll be ahead. But, but also by serving notice of the suit, it does require the rail company to maintain its records, which is something that is important. They have a history of not being transparent. They're very difficult to deal with. So that's probably a smart legal move. There are, though, so many unanswered questions that it's hard to understand what the grounds for the suit will be. You don't know if if health has been affected because you don't really know what was spewed out there and who might have been exposed to it. Um, it's going to be interesting to see this go. We have so many questions about this about this accident, and it does take a while for these things to get investigated. We'll be doing some of our own work on it. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Cuyahoga County Jail has high turnover of guards, which causes no end of problems in the embattled lockup. Layla, what do exit interviews with the parting guards say? This was a great story by Caitlin Durbin this week. It's And it's further proof that they can build the Taj Mahal of jails, but they'll never achieve humane conditions or, or high workforce morale at that facility if they don't address some of these critical management problems. So Caitlin got a, a hold of a batch of exit interviews from corrections officers who had left the job in the past year, and their feedback is very telling. One officer 
said that after she announced she was leaving, she showed up to work for her last shifts in the jail and discovered that her bosses had already cleaned out her locker and threw away all her personal belongings. Her her corporal told her that the items don't belong to her anymore because she was quitting Hmm. and she never got them back. So, you know, in her exit interview, she cited that as as an example of how disconnected and disrespectful management had become. She told Caitlin that when you work at the jail, management treats you like you're the inmates. Another CEO said she never felt like jail management considered their well-being and that officers were forced to work in, in very dangerous situations. And management didn't provide proper training and they made decisions without consulting officers about the real world impact it was having on them out of touch, unorganized, helpful, unhelpful and rude and uncaring were common themes in a lot of the exit interviews. Some complained about the the mandatory overtime when coworkers don't show up for, for work and, and they still need coverage at the jail. And one CO told Caitlin about a time when she was required to work 16 hours and a replacement never showed up to relieve her. She stayed another two hours of overtime to prevent her partner from being in a dangerous situation alone. Then she was told to come back later for her normal shift that night. <laughs> so others, you know, were saying that the inhumane conditions that inmates that inmates face lead to inmate unrest that then makes their jobs as COs very difficult and dangerous, which is uh which is something that I hadn't totally thought through until that. So very illuminating stuff in these uh in these records. Yeah, I, I was glad that they had good detail in them because a lot of times exit interviews are being done with people quit who are disgruntled. And so they load up the shotgun and fire away. But the specifics in these reports, like the woman doing the double shift and then having to stay, are concrete evidence of the issues of disdain with which the management of the jail holds the guards. Yeah. I mean, it's important to note that there were 291 uh, people, corrections staff who resigned or retired or were fired from the department last year. And this is just a sliver of that. But, you know, and the county spokesman pointed out that overall, it, it you know, the exit interviews do include a lot of positive remarks about working there and that in 65% of them, the CEOs gave reasons for leaving that were very similar to what you'd find at any organization. They're retiring or or they're relocating to a new state or they want to work from home, stuff like that. But still, that leaves a huge chunk of them that are, you know, leaving for other reasons that are probably very specific to working in the jail. Well, the jail's dysfunctional. We know that. And so any evidence as to why is is important. We talk about building a new jail, but the argument against that is, is if the problems at the jail are a management problem, a new facility won't change that. Let's right. fix the management problems. And the sheriff just gave notice. So lots of work to do there. It's today in Ohio. One way to make the jail safer is to reduce the population, and there's a program involving the state prison, not the county jail, that aims to end recidivism through cooking. Laura, how does that work? This is really cool, and it's a great story from Molly Walsh. The idea is to give inmates something to do when they while they're in jail, but then a a skill for when they're out and even a degree. So hundreds of incarcerated women are participating in this chopping for change. It's a partnership between Lutheran Metropolitan Ministry, the Ohio Department of Rehabilitation and Correction, and the Cuyahoga County Office of Reentry. So Monday through Friday, people accepted into this program 
They leave the prison to attend job readiness seminars, culinary classes, and kitchens where they work. They provide meals for local homeless shelters or they cater events. And participants have really positive things to say. They said they're trying to break their cycle and this place has given me the opportunity to do so. And it's going to give them opportunities and take them home so that they will be okay after prison. And obviously we know recidivism is a huge problem in the prison system. People leave and come back. And less than 3% of the women who have completed this chopping for change, because I think it's just women for right now, have returned to prison. So it's like 97% successful. That seems pretty great to me. It's a variation of the theme that Brandon Krastowski has done Mm -hmm. training Mm -hmm. people in the restaurant industry who go on to be restaurant workers. And we know the restaurant industry is in desperate need of workers. This was a good news story about positive change. Very good stuff. Also, I just want to add, the, the one we're talking about is for women, but the program just expanded to the Graft and Reintegration Center for men. So that's going to begin, or it, it's just beginning right now. So hopefully we can re, you know, uh, get more of these programs going. It's Today in Ohio. Advocates for autism treatment might have a breakthrough in their battle for medical marijuana. Lisa, it's bizarre to me how hard this has been because they'll give medical marijuana for just about anything. What's the latest with autism? A committee of the Ohio State Medical Board voted uh, to move ahead with exploring the efficacy of medical marijuana to treat autism spectrum disorder, also obsessive compulsive disorder and irritable bowel syndrome. So the next step, they will speak to expert witnesses and then seek public comment on the issue. So... um, Public, the public submitted request to add 10 new illnesses to the list of current 25 conditions eligible for medical marijuana. And not many are approved in past years due to lack of research and gold standard research at that. But the committee is looking at a study from the Hebrew University of Jerusalem that had 150 autistic youth with behavioral issues enrolled. One study group saw 80% of parents reporting a decrease in, in behavioral outbursts, 62% of parents reported significant improvement in their children. But see, this has been stymied because autism spectrum's, you know, been requested every year, but the Nationwide Children's Hospital of Columbus has testified against adding autism every single year, and they're very strident about it. But we have to point out that uh, Nationwide Children's was paid $263,000 from a drug manufacturer for clinical trials of a Pidiolex seizure drug, which is a cannabis-based drug, which has now been FDA-approved. I just It boggles my mind how this has been so difficult, because pretty much any other condition that's been suggested has been embraced. And, and this one, it's, you're, you're, it's probably what you just said. There's big money involved. There's profit to be made. And so, once again, Ohio government, is it really serving the needs of the people or the people with the money? It's Today in Ohio. Hey, in other states, you can bet on the flip of the coin at the Super Bowl. You could bet on the color of the Gatorade that gets dumped on the coach. Well, why can't you do that in Ohio? Well, Sean McDonald tells us that the Ohio Casino Control Commission's rules don't allow for those fun bets that surround sporting events like who wins the coin toss or how long the national anthem lasts or the Gatorade color, like you said. You can place those bets in other states, but the sports books here can't offer them. 
And the reason is that the Ohio that Ohio will only allow bets that can be settled on the field. So Sean's example was that you can bet on which player will win the Super Bowl's MVP award, but you can't bet on whether Rihanna will sing Disturbia during her halftime show. <laughs> and here's some other examples of wagers that aren't permitted. You can't bet on actions of coaches, officials, or, or referees. So you can't bet on the number of timeouts called or the number of penalties. You can't bet on, on whether a player will be injured. Can't bet on entertainment around the sports like halftime performances. Can't bet on random determinations like the coin toss or on clothing, equipment, or any other item where the outcome is determined prior to the start of the game. This, you know, so so that's uh, like the Gatorade, for example. Um, sounds reasonable, I guess. What do you think? I no, it doesn't make any sense to me. I, it sounds like they're worried that it could the fix could be put in. Yeah, you can put the fix in on the game. The coin toss is part of the game. I mean, and it's random. I mean, the you coin can't toss. I agree with you. That toss. was going to be my point. Is that I, I don't get why the coin toss is off limits. It's a total matter of chance. No one's influencing it. It's a stupid thing to to vote upon, but you know, or to bet on, but you know, seems well, incorruptible to me. The other thing is there there are teams that have a great number of penalties and there are teams that don't. And I don't know why you can't bet on that. It is a part of the game. If if one of the teams is, you know, the, the Browns or, or have had times when they've been a heavily penalized team and you can't bet on it, it just seems strange. Because what, what this does is it creates a patchwork across the nation of things you can and can't do. Um, and we, we kept getting caught on it. We actually had a story on our site for a little while yesterday about these bets and the governor or the, uh, the casino control commission sent us a note saying, Hey, just want you to know, you got a story up saying this, you can't do that in Ohio. You might want to correct it. We check with the rules. It's like, Oh yeah, you can't do it. We took the story down, but, but it's because in so many places you can, and it, it it's just bizarre. I, I, do agree. I don't think they said you might want to take the story down. <laughs> I think they were <laughs> like, Hey, this is wrong. I, but yeah, no, I, I thought mean, it was, they look, they didn't, they, they were the very power. polite. Yeah, they don't have the power to say, take the story down. We could tell them to stuff it. I thought they wrote a, a very helpful, and I thanked them for it. And thank you for I, alerting I us. I do and, agree that you shouldn't be able to bet on anything where someone knows how it's going to turn out or they're in charge of the, the outcome of it. Like the color of Gatorade or the halftime performance. A lot of people could be in the know about mm -hmm. what that, you know, and, and you know, you just... Yeah. So, and, and I mean, even the, the calls that the refs make, you don't know. You know, a slimy ref could could decide how many times uh he's going but to but but that but a slimy player can do the same thing to change the point spread i mean but player if, if, play is i mean first of all everyone wants to win the super bowl they're not gonna they want to win they're gonna bet on themselves every time <laughs> it's but but by how many points it, it's not just about winning and losing it's do you cover the spread and you know, does does the running back get the hundred yards? There are all sorts of things that if people want to be bad about, they can they can do. Refs are largely applauded for their integrity. So I'm I don't know that you could think a ref would have any more reason to be corrupt than a player, except maybe the refs don't make as much money. Yeah. And so this would give them riches beyond their imagination. Yeah. Oh well, it's an interesting story. Check it out. It's on Cleveland.com. That does it for today in Ohio for Thursday. Oh, Chris, Thank can you. I jump in yeah. one thing? I, I wanted to take a moment to just correct the record on something that I said in a recent podcast. We were talking about Councilman Marty Sweeney's suggestion that county councils spend a quarter million on a brand consultant to improve the relationship to the community. And Councilwoman Sunny Simon had said during that meeting that she was more interested in hiring someone to 
fight the media. And I conflated those two things. And I said off the cuff that that Simon wanted to spend a quarter million on fighting the press. And, and that was inaccurate. She she did not assign a dollar amount to that idea. Um, so I just wanted to to go on the record and, and okay, make sure that's correct. Let's be clear, whether it's a quarter of a million dollars, whether it's $50, trying to spin the, the public <laughs> is not the way to go. Good behavior is the way to go. You don't want to get blasted for slush funds? Don't create slush funds. You don't want to get blasted for wasting money on the medical mart? Don't waste money on the medical mart. These are true facts. And no matter what you do with your money to try and change it, the public's going to understand it. That's it. We'll be back Friday to wrap up the week of news. 